Welcome to Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, the podcast. Each episode, we'll take you on a deep dive into the connections between global finance and modern slavery and human trafficking. We'll look at all the different ways that the financial sector can harness its leverage to end modern slavery, forced labor, and human trafficking, and bring you a roundup of all the latest developments from ESG regulation to revealing research. Last episode, we heard how banks, remittance companies, and credit card companies have been analyzing financial transactions to spot modern slavery and human trafficking. We left you, though, on a skeptical note. The banks quite quickly realized that identifying suspicious activity related to human trafficking was very challenging without doing a good deal of extra investigation. And investigations, internal investigations that they conduct on human trafficking means internal investigations that they don't have time to conduct on other issues. And so right. I think what, we, what we've seen is the low-hanging fruit have been grasped. So sex trafficking, for example, is I think something that banks have been able to really engage with energetically and, and have certainly contributed to law enforcement activity there. But slavery on fishing fleets, for example, where the activity is legal, it's just the way it's being done is illegal, Well, that's much more difficult to identify when all you're looking at is financial transactions trying to identify suspicion. That was Tom Keating. I am currently director of the Centre for Financial Crime and Security Studies at the Royal United Services Institute. That's a bit of a mouthful. Everyone just uh, refers to us as RUSI. Tom argues that it has turned out to be much harder to follow the money than many expected. That's exactly right. And if you think, you know, if you're sitting there working in a bank, what information do you have to go on in trying to judge whether there's illegal activity? So you're meant to know your customer. So you're meant to know who they are, who owns them and all that sort of stuff to confirm that they're bona fides. Are they who they say they are? Okay, tick that box. Then you're just looking at the transactions that they do. And those are really the bits of information that you're drawing on to come to a determination as to whether the transaction in front of you right now is suspicious or not. And if it's suspicious, you inform the authorities. If it doesn't look suspicious, you carry on. And so drawing that distinction is very, very challenging for banks. I think it's turned out to be a more complicated topic to engage with from a banking perspective than we all thought, I certainly thought, back in 2012, 13, 14, when the banks first embraced this issue. What's in play here, Keating argues, is our understanding of what effective reporting actually looks like. What are the limits of bank monitoring and reporting obligations? That's, I think, the core of the debate that's being had in the financial crime world these days around this whole question of effectiveness. Am I being effective if I'm just monitoring for suspicious activity, which is what I'm legally required to do, and going home at the end of the day saying, well, I've seen nothing suspicious? Or should I be turning that on its head and saying, as a bank, as somebody who has access to tremendous information about what my customers are doing, should I be using that privileged position to be essentially an extension of of law enforcement, to be a form of intelligence and investigation unit? And some of the big banks have the luxury of money and resource and time to do both, to both do what they are legally required to do, and then say, now how do I use this position that I have, this position responsibility I have, to be also an investigator 
And some of them certainly do that and, and have, have done that very effectively. But that's a tiny, tiny uh, minority of banks that have those resources. So generally, banks will simply look for suspicious activity, report it to their financial intelligence unit, which is a requirement that every country has one of those. And then that's the end of it. I asked Keating whether the kinds of fines we saw in the Westpac case would change the way banks understand the scope of their monitoring responsibilities. I think it's worth looking at you know, why the scandals that have emerged around financial crime failings have occurred. And you've had your fair share in Australia. We've certainly had our fair share in the UK and, and across, um, across Europe. And generally, those failings have come about as a result of failures in process. What's then happened, as in the case in Australia, the process has failed and it's allowed certain forms of heinous crime to occur. But the banks in question are not being nailed for allowing certain forms of heinous crime to occur. They're being nailed for the process failures that led to that happening. And in a way, the introduction of, of sex trafficking or online child sex exploitation or anything like that spices up and brings to life the realities of their, of their failings. So I think there's no doubt that the fines, you know, I used to work in, in banking, I'm very familiar with how we reacted at that time back in 2012-13 when these big fines first started coming out. It galvanizes banks to say, crumbs, I better make sure I'm not the next one to get shot by the Department of Justice or the New York DFS or any other regulator or supervisor from around the world, Oztrack or anyone else. And so you look at your systems and procedures and you try and make them as robust and as tight as possible. But what you don't do is go, gosh, I must look for more human trafficking. So you basically say, am I ticking all the right boxes to keep my nose clean rather than I better be a better global corporate citizen? And I think that's an important distinction to draw. So Keating's analysis, which is hard to fault, is that most businesses will do the minimum. Keating says that despite the indications that risks of modern slavery are going up as a result of COVID, the minimum may be declining. Banks will have fewer resources to spare for monitoring for these risks, not more. Well, I think the question is when a bank turns around and says, okay, well, let's have a conversation, um, UK government. Do you want me to focus on that or do you want me to focus on processing the 20, 30-fold increase I've had in loan applications under your latest business continuity scheme. That's the realistic challenge that financial institutions will face. They will have to, they're redeploying resources to help governments keep national economies going. And it's a terrible thing to say, but right now, uh, I'm afraid that will be the priority of any government I can think of. How then can we make it cheaper and easier for banks to find the instances of forced labour and modern slavery hidden inside the otherwise legitimate financial transactions passing through their systems? How do we reduce the costs of search and how do we make it more effective? Researchers in the Netherlands have some ideas. And as with so many other things these days, the answer may be artificial intelligence. My name is Jill Koster van Voorhout. I am an assistant professor at the University of Amsterdam in the criminal law department on the brink of becoming an associate professor in two more days. Oh, congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> professor, you've been looking into this challenge. What solutions have you found? 
Well, we've tried to develop in this public-private partnership a query so that we could help banks to actually have a tool for automated searches of their data. And I'd have to say that is not just financial data, but also contextual factors, um, such as multiple victims living at a single address that is registered as a bank as well. The reason often being that as a human trafficker, you don't only want to control someone's working relationship, but also their living arrangement so that you can make them multiply dependent on you. Uh, And that is also a way, of course, to have control over someone's freedom of movement uh, and thereby uh, make sure that they are being coerced, uh, not just at home, but also in the workplace. Um, We've looked into factors such as how homogenous is that group that is living at that single home address. So those are more contextual factors. Uh, But we've also looked into uh, financial uh, information, of course, since, of course, that is uniquely available at banks. And uh, one of those instances, and this also might give you a flavor of how context specific this type of research is, is that since the 1st of January into of 2016, there's been a Dutch statute on combating pretend legal structures. And one requirement under that statute has been to demand from an employer that a wage is being deposited on the bank account of a employee. Since that is the case, now if you'd want to, as an employer, pretend as if you are doing everything legally and you're making sure that on paper your business structure looks as it ought to, then of course you would have to deposit that wage on a bank account. But then if you want to keep control over that money and never give it to the victim, him or herself, then you immediately withdraw it, you make sure that it'll be transferred, or you'll have the victim withdraw it at an ATM, or do so yourself if you have access to the uh, bank pass that some people have, of course. And so these are the two ways in which you can look quite in a structured manner, I would say, to all of the data available at a bank in order to detect potential victims of human trafficking, about whom we have no indication that they are victims. So this is a very proactive approach of searching for potential victims, as opposed to what is also still available to law enforcement, of course, reactively responding to a suspect or a person of interest or a company who's been reported for unfair competition and then requesting information about that individual. This goes the other way around, if you will. So this is to make sure that we detect victims of whom no one knew that they might be potential victims of human trafficking for labor exploitation. Has this method that you've developed improved our ability to find those kinds of victims, uh, as well as victims of trafficking into commercial sexual exploitation? Yes, I'm glad to say that um, thanks to using this particular query on the uh, limited amount of data of just one bank, we had been able to detect potentially 50 victims of human trafficking for labor exploitation. We've um, figured that we've now been able to open two criminal investigations on the basis of unusual transactions related to either human trafficking for labor exploitation itself or money laundering of the illegal proceeds arrived from that crime.
and one surveillance action. Um, so it was also only after we've been able to get such results that we felt that this was indeed a hypothesis, if you will, that we were able to prove that it is possible to find potential victims of human trafficking for labor exploitation in banking records without any further or previous indication of the fact that someone might be a potential victim. Context is key. So what we've understood in this project is that it is very context-specific how you can detect victims of this specific crime in banking records. You really need to know the ins and outs of a very specific system in which to do so. It does require a very detailed knowledge on how the crime manifests itself in a particular country and sometimes even city. So it's a very important empirical, uh, evidence-driven approach you're adopting, really following the evidence to understand how exploitation works as a management practice, as a profit-creating mechanism within that particular business model. Yes, that's certainly the case. And I think that is also a, a helpful way to look at exploitation, because if it would not be profitable, individuals wouldn't be involved in it. Professor Costa van Voorhout is now testing this approach at larger scale through a research consortium involving three international banks, a digital bank, five scientists covering AI, sociology, sanctions and public prosecution, plus nine different Dutch public agencies, the Dutch Ministry of Justice, the Ministry of Social Affairs, the Police Academy, the National Rapporteur on Human Trafficking, the Dutch Financial Intelligence Unit and others, and to NGOs. Professor Costa van Voorhout says that a partnership like this is essential. And so what we needed was a full partnership that would encompass all of that information so that you'd share public-private information by way of then translating it into something so very simple as this tool, but it needs follow-up. So if you detect potential victims of human trafficking and then as a bank report it to the financial intelligence unit as an unusual transaction related to that crime, it needs to be followed up by the financial intelligence unit, of course. Now, all of these partners within that whole chain, as I mentioned it, need to act independently. And we don't need to know about how they act within their own mandates. But what you do need is to have a common vision and a common goal towards all of which those individuals working uh, will then work towards. Um, so by looking at everyone's work independently and allowing everyone to do what they ought to do, we also abide by privacy guarantees and we abide by fair trial standards, which, of course, I find very important because once it ends up at a criminal trial, for example, it is important to be able to retrace it and to know that we haven't breached any confidentiality of, for example, uh, banking clients. But what you do need is to be able to exchange information that is so very detailed and not available in the different sectors. So it's perfectly understandable that a bank employee wouldn't know the ins and outs about human trafficking. So you need to be able to explain to each other in their vocabularies what is important and how to interpret it. And that is what we've tried to do. The more financial institutions, regulators and civil society work on this kind of analysis 
And the more they work together, the stronger will be our analytical and investigative tools. Here's Tom Keating again. Really, the first partnership that came out of the blocks was the so-called Joint Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force, the GIMLIT, as it's known shorthand, in the UK. And this grew up, this really started in 2014 and became a reality in 2015. And that's around the time when we were starting the program at Rusi. So we've tracked that and the evolution of other partnerships very closely. And the way the, the UK partnership works is you have a legal gateway that allows banks and the National Crime Agency, so you know our one of the major law enforcement, centralized law enforcement units in the UK, to share information as relates to fighting financial crime. And we don't need to go into the legal niceties of it, but there is a law that allows that to happen. And around that so-called operational unit, where the actual nominal information, names, bank accounts, dates of birth, and so on, are shared, there are a number of working groups. And one of the working groups, one of the early working groups set up by the gymnasts in the UK was the human trafficking and organized immigration crime. The idea there was that the data and information that I referred to earlier that banks have could be better illuminated. So those banks that wanted to investigate their data, they could do that more effectively if law enforcement provided them with tips, guidance, you know, examples of recent cases that might allow them, the banks, to investigate their own data more, more closely. And so from that idea, and we've seen other initiatives around the world where these partnerships have been set up, the Fintel Alliance in, in Australia is definitely a kind of second generation in terms of effectiveness, a second generation partnership. There are partnerships in Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, all sorts of places. And the simple idea is that by bringing together public sector and private sector, you can get a more effective understanding of the financial footprints of criminal activity, including in many places, human trafficking and modern slavery. And that those partnerships have then drawn on for uh, understanding and sort of information and knowledge, have drawn on initiatives like the Liechtenstein Initiative, like the Bali Process, these other initiatives around the world, is drawn on those to try and make those partnerships more effective. One of the latest champions of this approach is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Well, thanks, James. Uh, my name is Val Ritchie. I'm the Special Representative and Coordinator for Combating the Trafficking in Human Beings at the OSCE. Thanks, James. I'm Tarana Bagirova. I am the Associate Country Visit Officer. I also lead the Financial Investigation Project at the OSCE Office of the Special Representative for Combating Trafficking in Human Beings. Val and Tarana oversaw the preparation of Following the Money, the report mentioned earlier by Joseph Mari. What we wanted to do was give practitioners kind of a one-stop shop where they could come and get a compendium of all the great research out there so that they didn't have to scour the internet, right? If you're a, if you're a police officer or you're a, a bank and you're trying to think about what to do on this, we didn't want you to have to spend weeks of time researching to try to figure out the response. We wanted to give you a little handbook on what to read, where to find it, and what might be applicable to your region. The second thing we wanted to do is compile some of the great work that had been done across the globe on identifying indicators of trafficking in financial flows. There was dozens of lists of indicators. And what we thought is, let's bring them all together. Let's filter them down, try to find the ones that are most significant, and try to weed out the duplication and give everybody one list. And that's what we did in this paper. 
The second piece of the paper was more oriented around, okay, you're the financial sector or you're a financial investigative unit or you're the police and you want to build a network or a framework for responding to this problem. How do you go about doing that? Who's part of it? What does that, that interaction look like? And that's where we started building this guide to building a response in your country or your community to financial investigative crimes, particularly oriented around trafficking. Who do you work with? What partnerships do you build? And what's the function of everybody in that framework? That's the second part of the paper. One of the issues with labor exploitation also, there is um, a larger cooperation is needed to understand the exploitation per se. That's not only just law enforcement and banking sector, but there are additional stakeholders that are involved in the labor exploitation or identifying the labor exploitation. These are the labor inspectorates and these are the tax authorities. Partnership isn't a goal, it's a tool, right? So it's a, it's a way of achieving uh, some of the, the aims of, the, of, our, of our collective effort. And I think that in the financial investigation arena, partnership is such a great opportunity because you have private sector banks, you have the financial investigative units, you have the law enforcement. But then, as Tarana just mentioned, you have all these other groups that could contribute to this. And one of the things that that we have come to realize, maybe uh, later than others, or maybe not, is that to really fundamentally impact trafficking in human beings, it's going to take a collective effort from a whole bunch of people who, as their primary function, are not focused on human trafficking, right? Banks, their, their primary function is not to combat trafficking, but they have a really important role to play. And this, this aspect where we can take trafficking experts and have them work with non-trafficking experts in a partnership to combat this problem is really fascinating to me. And I think this issue of financial investigations is maybe the best example of that. So we're really optimistic that this project and that others like it around the world will help to advance this goal. And so this takes a little bit of collaboration. And what we're doing is identifying a few countries that are, that are really interested in responding to this, but don't already have the infrastructure. And uh, what we're gonna be doing over the coming months and, and years is working with them on some pilot projects to help build the institutional framework that we discuss in this paper on the ground in their countries so that the banks, the, the financial investigation units and law enforcement are all working together, uh, using the indicators, identifying suspicious transactions, reporting those to the police for follow-up investigation. What we wanna do is help those countries launch those uh, response systems so that they can add financial investigations to their portfolio of response tools. One partnership that emerges as particularly crucial is partnership with survivors. If anyone has expert contextual knowledge about what financial transactions data might mean, it's survivors. Timmy Nagy explains. Survivors can help by lending their voice as a consultant, as a guide. And survivors can also help financial institutions learn about the behavior of the human trafficking crime. And that contextual knowledge can improve anti-money laundering software. I was invited by an anti-money laundering software company to help them to uh, figure out how we can add an extra element to their existing software. So I helped engineering the 
first human trafficking detection software in the States. As a result, we ended up going to the States and teaching this to banks. And what we realized is the minute we actually turned on this system, the first week, we got 149 cases reported from the users from American banks. And out of the 149 cases, we realized that about 75% of them were a positive alarm for human trafficking. One project that has shown this is Project Protect. Timia, what is Project Protect? Project Protect started in 2015 when I attended to AML conference. It was actually an ACAMS conference in Toronto. And we just basically lost another court case where we couldn't prove that the victim was actually victimized and exploited for the purpose of financial benefits. When we went to the conference, we were presenting to all the large major Canadian financial institutions, mainly the EML departments. And at the end of my presentation, I was a little frustrated and I called out with my audience and I said, who's with me? Who can come together and help me fight human trafficking? Is there any financial institution out there who would like to come and come on board? And one man stood up. His name was Peter Work. He was the director of AML for Bank of Montreal, which is Canada's largest uh, financial institution, one of them. And he said, we are behind you. Please give me some time. I promise you that we are going to find solution for you. Two weeks later, he called me and he asked me to come to a board meeting. I attended this board meeting and that's where I met representatives from every single financial institution from Canada. Not only that, FinTrack came as well, RCMP, our federal police, service providers, and local police showed up. And the question was basically, how can we create a strategic project where we can all come together and we can start legally sharing information about human trafficking? And basically, how can we get the financial institutions involved to help us fight human trafficking. So Project Protect basically created this partnership amongst everybody, all the large players. They found a way to continue doing the communications in between themselves. They also were able to figure it out how to train, prevent, detect, and eventually find a way to report and also hand cases over to law enforcement. And what impact did it have? So let me just give you the numbers. In 2015, FinTrack actually reported up to 212 human trafficking-related investigations. Two years after Project Protect was in place, where FinTrack started working with financial institutions, law enforcement, and service providers, where they started training each other, where they implemented the human trafficking investigative unit, Two years later, all the work paid off because by then they reported over 4,000 suspicious activity reports from financial institutions across Canada specifically related to human trafficking. Change, then, is possible. Working together, banks, regulators, and other financial sector stakeholders can follow the money to discover and disrupt this terrible crime. The first step, though, is understanding how to do that. To help with that, we at FAST have partnered with the Association of Certified Anti-Money Laundering Specialists, or ACAMS, to build a free online training certificate on modern slavery and human trafficking. 
ACAMS has over 75,000 members around the world in 170 countries. We released the course together at the beginning of June 2020, and in the couple of months since we released it, more than 3,000 people have taken the course from over 116 countries, showing that there is a huge appetite for this kind of training in the financial sector. If you're interested to take the course, check it out on our website, www.fastinitiative.org, or on the ACAMS website, www.acams.org. That's A-C-A-M-S dot O-R-G. It's a few hours of video training that come with plenty of instructional materials and a certificate at the end. It's designed to be useful not just for anti-money laundering specialists, but for all kinds of risk managers and for business professionals generally. And did I mention? It's free. Next time on Fast the Podcast, we're going to take back control. We're going to do a deep dive into the challenges that survivors of modern slavery and human trafficking face in getting back on their feet after exiting exploitation. Here's Timmy Anagi describing what that's like. There was a specific night when I got a call from a collector from the hospital. And this guy eventually just started yelling at me that you're an immigrant. You think you just come here and scheme our system. And I can't even tell you the stuff he told me. And right after that, I had the call from CIBC, the bank. They said the same thing. You think you can just come here? They, they weren't as unprofessional as the credit collector. And I finally just hung up the phone and I started crying because I'm like, everybody makes me feel like a criminal and I feel terrible for not being able to pay, but I don't know what else to do. Like, I'm not getting any help. Nobody's helping me and I haven't done anything wrong, but everybody calls me a criminal. It was a very bad night. I still remember. And if I think about it, I'm 42 now and I still need to, I get emotional about it. I asked Rachel Seavey from our team at the FAST Secretariat to make sense of what's going on here. A survivor's access to financial services is a pivotal facet of their financial, social, and emotional recovery. And yet many survivors, as a result of their past exploitation, are enabled to acquire even the most basic of financial services, which are often taken for granted. This further contributes to a survivor's traumatization and creates additional roadblocks to their recovery and reintegration. Imagine not being able to access income you legally acquired because you were not approved to open a checkings or savings account at your local bank. Or in the context of COVID-19, not being able to deposit your stimulus check, which may be the very thing keeping you financially afloat in these difficult times. What can banks do to help survivors get back on their feet? Join us next time on the next episode of Fast the Podcast to find out. In the meantime, visit us at fastinitiative.org, on Twitter at FincomSlavery, or on LinkedIn's Fast Initiative profile. Please send us your feedback and suggestions by email to info at fastinitiative.org. And until next time, thanks for listening. This is a podcast recording by United Nations University Center for Policy Research. The views expressed are those of the speakers.